Well, hello, Sobertown, and welcome to the Sobertown podcast. My name is Polly A. And today I am going to do a very, very special interview with one of uh, her sober sisters. But before I introduce her to you, I mean, bless her, she's going to be very brave and tell us about her journey into sobriety. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Sobertown. Sobertown uh, was birthed just over a year ago from a nugget of an idea from one of our sober warriors. And it's a growing community of like-minded people, all in recovery, and we're working to help either others start or to help us maintain our sobriety. We refer to ourselves as sober warriors because the fight against addiction is a grisly battle and it takes no prisoners. People die every day from complications of the, and repercussions of long-term alcohol use. We're not here simply to shine a light on alcohol's, alcohol's ugly side. Excuse me, I need a new set of teeth. <laughs> We're forming a village of sober individuals from all walks of life that share common goal to support others in recovery while also increasing the dialogue around the many positive aspects of sobriety versus the darkness of addiction. And if you go to our website, SoberTownPodcast.com, you will find many, many things to help you with your journey, build your toolbox, etc. It's full of inspirational toolbox ideas from our wonderful friend, Todd. There's inspiration and resources, inspiration from people like my guest this morning, who's going to tell her story. And when you listen to these stories, it's surprising how much of it you can relate to your own journey into alcohol dependency so it the one thing about these stories they reveal that you're not alone you're not the only one who's going through these emotions etc with that I will introduce my guest which is uh, one of our sober time contributors actually she she works with another sober warrior Steve Kay who also told his story here today I welcome aka dry mountain mama Good morning, sweetheart. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. I'm really good. I'm a little nervous, but I'm really excited to be here. Don't be nervous. Like I say, once it's out there, it's out there. There's nothing to hide. Everything starts. Life starts. The wonderful stuff starts. But you started the wonderful stuff. I'll just tell the listeners a little bit about you from, and you can go to our website and read about, do you want me to call you Dry Mountain Mama or... Can we use your... Julie is fine. Julie is fine. I didn't want to presume. So, yeah, Julie does podcasts with her wonderful friend, Steve Kay. And she does the re, she does some of the Rewired, which is part of the Erica Spiegelman rewiring your brain. And you can rewire your brain for anything at all, but we are rewiring ours to fight alcohol and addiction. And Julie lives on a small farm in Western Colorado. And uh, she's very much an outdoor girl, aren't you, sweetheart? Yes, I am. Backpacking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And uh, you do a lot of crafts. You've got two teenagers, a busy life with teenagers, isn't it? There's always something going on. (laughs) And also what Julie is doing is creating a life that's so full. There's no space left for alcohol or addiction. And she is here today celebrating six months. Yes, yeah, six months on Saturday, so a couple of days. A couple of days, six months. Tell us uh, a bit about your journey, Julie. Yeah, so I think 
I'm just going to kind of start a little bit in childhood and go forward from there, if that's okay. Wherever you feel comfortable, darling. Okay. So I'll mention first that I was adopted at birth and it wasn't a real big deal in my childhood, but it comes up later in the story. So I'll just mention it now. My parents, my, my adopted parents waited years and years to get me. And so I was very loved and very doted upon. And it was the only girl. There were boy cousins and I had brothers, but I was the only girl. And so you know, I got all of that attention that that one little girl will get in, in a setting like that. Cherished. And I was, what? Cherished. Yes, very much. Very much. And I always felt loved. And, and they always let me know how loved I was. I knew I was adopted from the beginning. It was never a big thing. So it was just all I knew. It was normal to me. And I was, I was very loved. And in most ways forever, I, I would have considered my whole childhood nearly perfect. You know, it was, I went to a private school and they gave me so many opportunities. I was in dance classes and drama classes and soccer team and cheerleading. And like, they just, they gave me everything they could to make my life wonderful. And then at some point, I've realized looking back on it now, how much pressure there was in that. And I, I obviously I didn't recognize it as a child, but I, I can see where the pressure was to, to be good, to perform well, to behave well, to get good grades. I mean, I was always a straight A student, even, you know, second, third, fourth, fifth grade. And there was a lot of pressure on me just to stand out. I think, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, the five love languages, I love that book. So my primary love language is words of affirmation. Essentially, that means that when somebody says something affirming to me, if they tell me I did good, I feel more loved. And so recognizing that now, I think the lesson that I learned from a really young age was do something good. And then people say nice things to you. And then you feel loved. And then you you gain self-worth and value from it. And you know it, that was an easy lesson for a little girl to learn. And I just, I thrived on those words of affirmation. And so I, everything I did was trying to please the people around me. And so essentially starting at, I don't even know how little the whole theme of my life turned into people pleasing and perfectionism because I wanted to feel loved and I wanted to feel like I had self-worth. And so, I mean, I can remember situations as young as, you know, 10, 11 years old, where my self-worth came from somebody outside of me. I never really understood that I had value just for existing, if that makes sense. I think I've done this. um, I've been the same in my childhood in that you do things for approval. Yes. It's all about approval. And if mom or dad comes up and says, well done, you did really good. You feel good. If mom and dad comes up and says, well, I think you could have done better, it pulls you down and it doesn't always make you perform better. Like you say, it puts a pressure on you. Right. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just the way that I'm wired with the whole, you know, loving the words of affirmation, Mm -hmm. even the tiniest bit of criticism was crushing for me. So I could, you know, somebody could say, here's a way you could improve. And it was, it was honestly just constructive criticism. And for me, even as a little girl that resulted in me feeling like a failure. And so I would just try so much harder to do better next time. So I never wanted anybody to ever need to tell me here's how you could improve. Essentially, I was, I was looking for perfection, right? You were setting yourself up 
Yes. <laughs> you, were really, you were really setting yourself up there, weren't you? Because oh, yeah. we know now, we'll go back to your story, but we know now in this, in later life, there is no such thing as perfection. Right. It's, it's all up here. We do it to ourselves. We are oh, our we worst do. enemies. <laughs> so, I mean, we torment ourselves, I think, especially if that's where we get our self-worth. Because we all want to feel like we have value. We all want to feel loved. We all want to feel like, you know, we, we deserve good things. And for me, that all came from outside of myself. I think we like to think that we're a good person. And by mm-hmm. doing all this, we're proving that we are good people. See, I can do this and I can do that. I'm a good person. You don't need to worry about me. I'm a good people. Yeah. People pleaser. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it was. Um, people pleasing and perfectionism, I think, are like the themes of my life from before I can even remember. So that was that was childhood. I kind of like I made some notes and kind of divided this up as far as different sections of my life. So, and I think because we're so underdeveloped at that age, and we're still growing, we don't understand the emotions because as children we live in the moment. Yes. We and so, and putting that, um, and parents don't do it intentionally, put pressure on children. Majority of parents I know don't anyway. I'm sure there are those, correct me if I'm wrong, who probably do. But you try to give your children as many opportunities to find something that they enjoy, unknowingly putting that pressure on them. Yes. That is completely accurate. I've actually found myself doing the same thing to my own children long before I learned all of these lessons that I've learned in sobriety. It was never intended as pressure, but I put my kids in so many different activities just because I wanted them to figure out what they loved and you know what fulfilled them. And I think essentially I did the same thing to my kids that my parents did to me, never understanding that a lot of the feelings that I had actually came from exactly that kind of child rearing. Isn't it nice to know that you're normal? (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) You're perfectly normal. You did the same kind of things. It's like sometimes I will say something and I, it's like, okay, that was my mother talking. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. And it's all so Mm well-meaning. We just don't know any better. It's, It's all done out of love. And I know that everything my parents did, it was all out of love. I don't really hold it against them. I mean, that's, I think the first thing we need to do on this journey of sobriety is acknowledge that our parents, no matter how much trauma we're overcoming, most of us can say that our parents just did the best with what they had. It's the same um, as what we do nowadays. And um, funny enough, I had a conversation with my sister-in-law the other day and she said something. And I said, well, considering there was no manual to learn how to do this, to be a parent, I said, we've not done too much. <laughs> exactly. exactly. You can't know if you've been a good parent until the child grows up mm-hmm. and starts developing themselves as an adult. Um, so it's, it's a tough one being a parent. I think being a parent is one of the hardest jobs ever because oh, trying to find balance. So like you say, you felt under pressure. So trying to find the balance so you don't do the same thing to your own children. Mm-hmm. We get so busy in the day-to-day living that we forget. It just, you know, you, you get up in the morning, you're running around all day, and then you go to bed and it's just been a normal day, but you don't realize the things you're doing in that normal day. It's right. uh, like you say, 
oh, let's go so-and-so. And maybe they don't want to go and do so-and-so, but to please mom, they'll go and do it is what we've all done. But right. you came out of your childhood. What happened when you hit your teen years? Did, how were you in high school? So I went to, as a, as a child, up through sixth grade, I went to a really tiny little private school. So there were about 12 kids in my class. We grew up together. I was so comfortable in that. And that's where the school ended. There was no middle school and high school at that school. And so I went into public school for the first time. It was a culture shock to be serious. I went from 12 kids in my class to 400 kids in my class. And I felt like I had no place. (laughs) I mean, I grew up knowing exactly where my place was within that group of 12 kids, you know, and then to go into this huge group of kids and you just like, you feel like you had, like you're starting over from scratch, trying to figure out where you even belong in that massive group. But I was very used to being noticed and very used to words of affirmation. Sounds like and a Disney I was, movie. Exactly. <laughs> like it the does. little fish, like the little fish suddenly in this big yes. pond with all the other fish. Okay, how do I swim in this? Okay. Exactly. Sorry, man. Exactly. I was just uh, you were talking about it, and I had visions of Dory and all those fish. <laughs> that is so accurate. I feel like that movie was made after a life like mine. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was really hard because I wanted to stand out because that's how I gained my self-worth. Right. I stood out. Mm-hmm. I did things that, that impressed people. People told me I did good. Then I felt like I had value. It was, this, it was this constant cycle. And I was just one of like 400 kids. The teachers barely even knew my name. Mm-hmm. There was nobody for me to impress or please or, you know, achieve things for, for the attention that just the opportunity wasn't even there. So I felt really lost in middle school. And that just about the time I settled in and I made some friends and at least kind of had a tiny little niche in, in my, you know, in the school, we started the process of moving. So this all happened in California. And then um, my dad got laid off. My parents had always wanted to live in Colorado. So that seemed like a good opportunity for that. So seventh grade, halfway through seventh grade, just about the time I was starting to figure out what public school was going to be like, we moved to a fairly small town in Colorado. So still public school, much smaller. And then subsequently, we moved to another small town in Colorado and then yet another town in Colorado. And so between seventh grade and 12th grade, we moved a total of four times. And I never had a chance to establish myself or figure out where I fit in with any of these groups of kids. And I can then, totally, yeah, I can totally relate to that because I'm a service brat. My dad was in the army. Okay. And I think a lot of children of service personnel who've grown up can relate to that because you're constantly on the move. Mm-hmm. And just when you establish yourself and you're finding, like you say, your little niche, this is my little spot. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden it's, oh, by the way, let's pack up and we're moving again. Right. Yeah. It's relatable. Yes. Very. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just hard. You know, that's that age where you're just trying to figure out who you are anyway. You're just trying to figure out your place in the world. And so just when I'd start to kind of figure that out, just when I'd start to kind of feel like maybe I was starting to belong, I would get uprooted and then moved on to the next place. Mm -hmm. And there's something with, and I think it's, it's a small town thing more than, than a big city thing, but these kids have all grown up together. You know, you've got 40 or 50 kids in a a class. They've grown up together since they were in kindergarten. They all know each other. And then here's the new kid. 
And I know, you know, you get the new kid thing, no matter what school you go to, but it was, I was definitely an outsider. I just, I stayed an outsider all through all of those years because they didn't know me. I I just, I wasn't a part of that group of kids and it was really hard to feel like I belonged there at all. Did you feel like they had their own language as well that you weren't part of? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that is something that's really hard when you come into an, uh, into something that's been well-established. Like you say, these children grew up together. They've got their own language and it's almost like totally different. Well, you're not, not a part of that language, are you? Right. Yeah. Very much just not a part of anything. And so I think, you know, kicking some people pleasing, And then I just started trying to be whatever they might want me to be so that I could fit in. And I think a lot of us do that. We completely let go of whoever it is that we are or stop even, I mean, at that age, you don't even know who you are, but you stop looking for who you really are. And you start looking for what people will accept, what they will like, what do you need to do? Who do you need to be for them to say nice things to you? So you can be a part of whatever it is that they have. And so that all started in seventh grade, 12 years old, the mask went on. I don't think, I mean, it didn't come off until I quit drinking. I don't think. Um, It's like living a double life, isn't it? Because you're one person at school and then you're another person at home. You're expected to be another person at home with all your siblings and your parents. I mean, you live this double life. Right. And, and if you're in, you know, in in a home, like, well, I don't even want to say in a home like mine, but if you're of a mentality, the way mine was, I was still not even being really true to myself at home. It was just a different version of Mm -hmm. people pleasing. What expectations need to be met? How can I best meet them? I never really took that time that most kids take during their middle school and high school years to start figuring out who they actually are. Mm -hmm. What things do they really love doing? What things do they not love doing? All of, you know, everything that goes along with this, essentially authenticity. Most kids, I think most healthy teenagers start finding their themselves in those, those formative years. And I never did. And I also think that as soon as I started the people pleasing and, and just trying to make everybody like me, I think a lot of emotional development was stunted at that point too. Yeah. Because we hide everything, don't we? We put it all down. We don't, you know, we don't want to feel this. We don't want to do this. We don't want to say this because we will be, and also there's this, you don't want to be judged. Right. You don't want to be judged and found wanting a lot of people. And that happens through a lot of their years Mm -hmm. is that you're always, we're always worried about being judged and found wanting, especially when you're going into an established environment. Right. Well, and as a kid, you walk into a group of kids that have been, have grown up together. And the first thing they're going to do is see everything about you that's different. So the first thing you do as a kid is try to be as much the same as you possibly can, you know? And I just, I completely lost myself through middle school and high school. If I, if I ever had any inkling of who I was, it was gone by the time high school was over. I spent so much time just trying to prove myself, just trying to fit in, just trying to be liked. I had terrible self-esteem because Anytime someone didn't like me, anytime I was made fun of, anytime, even the slightest little negative comment would just crush me because all I wanted was to make everybody happy and make everybody like me. That was all I lived for. So I I was so easily crushed. 
and kids are mean and it's like they can smell the weakness they can smell fear and as soon as they say yes. one thing and they see that you've been crushed it's like they just jump on that you're like um, chum in the water and all the sharks come so. yes it's so true and i mean that is that is just it and so i struggled so much to find any acceptance eventually i kind of um i kind of found it with i want to say the the bad kids the kids that were the kind of the outcasts at the school, you know, they were a lot of times the ones. Yeah. Well, and a lot of times they were the ones that were, you know, smoking during their school breaks or the ones that had, you know, the mohawks and leather jackets and the, the ones that weren't looked upon real fondly by parents and teachers, but my God, they were the most accepting people. Mm -hmm. They didn't care who you were. They just, you showed up and they were nice. And I never even got right. No judgment. They just, they didn't, they didn't care. You didn't have to prove yourself to them. And I never really got wrapped up in, in smoking or drinking or drugs or anything in, in school. Um, I mean, I think I experimented with drinking a handful of times. I smoked pot a couple of times. It was never anything that was, you know, a big, a big, huge theme in my teenage years by any means. But I did, I found acceptance with them. And I found a place where I felt more comfortable. Of course, then you also have all those other kids that make fun of you even more because you're hanging out with that. It was just, it was like the cycle that I could not win. I think at that age is when you, you really start having big feelings. Your feelings get a lot bigger. They get a lot more intense. You're starting to see outside of yourself more and you're starting to question things and things feel like they matter more to you. And you're just the, the bigger thoughts, you know, what am I doing here? What is my purpose here? Those are the things you don't think about when you're little. It's painful. It is painful because while you're in with the, the kids who are accepting you, you're still not being yourself. Exactly. It's hard. And teenage years, I think, are some of the worst years. I know what I've had boys. I haven't had girls, teenage girls, but I've watched my nieces and my granddaughters. And I see how hard it is for them to find acceptance mm-hmm. and how they have to work so hard to be different, to be accepted. Right. Yeah, it is. It's, it's just a constant, you're just hustling constantly. And so I really fell into like depression and anxiety. I'm going to say probably about 15, 15, 16 years old. I didn't really know why, but I was just really unhappy. I was very anxious. And looking back, I can see exactly why it was just that I was always hustling. I was never being authentic and it's, it's miserable. Your life feels empty. And so I tried, and this is something kids learn is is to how to voice their emotions, how to put words to the way that they feel. And I think that's something I never really learned. I tried, I remember trying to tell, especially my mom, but, but both of my parents, how I felt. Mm -hmm. And looking back, I think a lot of that was just very, all of my feelings were just invalidated. I don't want to say all, many of my feelings were invalidated. I was told that I was making too much of something, um, that it wasn't really that big of a deal. And I was, I guess, just made to feel very small or belittled or like I was overreacting. And that it, it hurts to be made to feel that way when you're working so hard to try to get those feelings out, because it is really vulnerable to talk about how you're feeling. And after, and, yeah, and after the affirmations of you've done well, you've done well, to be told those kind of things, it's, it's the opposite end of the scale. Exactly. So I, 
I learned not to talk about the way that I felt because it didn't feel, the response didn't feel good. The response hurt my feelings. So I just started keeping everything inside. And I mean, we all know what bottling up our emotions leads to, you know, I mean, it's just a downhill slope from there. I ended up at some point telling my parents that I was suicidal. And I want to say that I was 16 when that happened. And um, even then I knew I wasn't really suicidal. I wanted somebody to know how badly I was hurting. I wanted them to actually pay attention to acknowledge that my feelings were as big as I felt like they were. And so their response to that, and, and any parent would be terrified when their kid says that. Their response was immediately to put me in the psychiatric ward at the hospital. And from there, you know, try to find medications to put me on, try to get me into therapy. I didn't want or really even need any of that. I just needed my parents to listen more. And they were so scared and didn't know what to do with a teenager who says I'm suicidal that they just got me the most, like the, the biggest amount of help that they thought they possibly could. And I don't even judge them for it. You know, it was, they were just doing whatever they thought that they needed to. So from there, I spent like three days at the mental hospital. And then I got transferred to essentially like a, um, a, a youth or adolescent mental housing unit. And I stayed there for like a month. So it was like intensive therapy. You're living with it's like a group home almost where, you know, you have psychiatrists and therapists and everybody, and they put you on medications. And, and then from there, because I, and I, I was definitely rebellious at that point too. I was, I was so frustrated with not being understood. I was definitely rebelling against my parents in a lot of ways. And so from there they would come visit me and I was, I was very rebellious. I wanted nothing to do with them. I was so angry. And so they felt like they still didn't want me to come home because they weren't sure how they were going to handle me. So then they put me into foster care for the better part of a year because they felt like anybody else could handle me better than they could. And I think a certain amount of that was, you know, that I was going to, they always expected a good behavior and good grades. And at some point I stopped doing all of those things because I, it was never enough. And I think that's when the rebellion kicked in and then they just kind of like threw up their hands. Like, I don't know what to do with her. She's no longer meeting expectations. <laughs> you think all this, you, you say to them, was suicidal. I mean, I'm listening to this from outside. Mm-hmm. To me, it would be, and this is just me. Please, folks, don't, 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 don't take this. I would want to sit down with my child and talk. Yes. I'm a huge communicator. I always have been. And I'm a huge believer in words. And you saying that they put you in the mental hospital because they were frightened. I would be frightened. But I would also want my child to know how loved they were. And I'm not saying that didn't happen. But mm-hmm. mine, I suppose I've got a nurturing nature. And I would want to sit down with my child when they would tell me that and say, why? Yeah. Would you say that was what you were trying to get across? Probably. I think a lot of it was very subconscious. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that I really had any intentions of exactly what I wanted. I just wanted somebody to validate the way that I felt. And I wasn't getting that. And, you know, I grew up in, in a, again, very loved. My parents were not communicators. I never learned to communicate because as soon as I tried I I was kind of shut down. So for them to sit down and say, why do you feel the way you feel? That would have been completely 
unexpected, um, like just Alien. so far fetched. Yeah, that would that would never happen. So what I did learn though, I think, was that essentially do what people like, or they're not going to want you anymore. They're going to abandon you. Right. So I couldn't meet their expectations anymore, or I felt like I couldn't, or I didn't want to. Um, there was just there was so much going on in my head I think at that point, like, and I don't even know. There's a bit of a disconnect goes on, isn't there? Because okay, if you're not going to listen to me, you're not going to validate how I feel, then I'm closing the door. Yeah. When you're ready to hear what I've got to say and listen to me, I'll open the door and we can talk. Right. Yeah. Exactly that. I, I put up a wall. And that wall stayed up for a long time because I don't know, because it hurt, you know, that's, that's just protecting yourself. I didn't have coping skills. I didn't have coping mechanisms. I didn't know how to deal with any of my feelings. So I put a wall up and I separated myself. Right. Only 16. And as a 16 year old girl, I mean, you've got teenagers, they're hormonal, Mm -hmm. they're moody. They are emotional and they need someone who can um, relate to the emotions they're going through. And if you're not getting, and that is a validation. Mom coming and saying, look, I've been a teenager. I know what this is like. It's shitty. You know, this is a crappy stage, but we'll get through it and we'll get through it together. That's the kind of validation you want is to know that there is someone on your side who's going to support you through these tough times because 16 is not an age to know how to deal with these huge emotions that we're starting to feel. Right. Yeah. There's, there's no way to put it into perspective at that point either. You don't have anything to compare this to, you know, life is just starting. So these feelings that feel so overwhelming and powerful and our, our parents look at them and shrug them off, but that's all we know. That's the biggest and most powerful feeling that we've ever felt at that age. So it feels, you know, it feels huge. It feels like Mm -hmm. something that needs to be dealt with. And so to have those things just, just kind of brushed off. It was just devastating to me. Um, Exactly. And I just never, looking back, I realized now I never reached any sort of emotional maturity. And I know it all came from, from that time in my life, or at least a good part of it came from, because that's when we're supposed to be emotionally developing. And I shut down. The brain is still developing until the age of 25, isn't it? So I mean, just, you're still a bad a real baby at that stage. Right. And like you say, emotions, and we run a gamut of emotions, like you say. And as girls, sorry, guys, I know guys do, this happens with guys as well, but girls really do want to be accepted by other girls because the bitchiness that comes when you're not accepted by other girls can be absolutely devastating. It is. Yeah. It, I think that's all we any of us want really is just to fit in and feel like we're a part of something. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you went um, into foster care for a year. I went into foster care. It was about a year at some point in there at 17, I dropped out of high school. I got my GED. I quit school. I actually went to a semester of college at age 17. So, I mean, I dropped out of high school in probably the most responsible way a kid can do that. I was really smart. I was always in the gifted classes. I always got straight A's. Kids were really mean. And so I dreaded going to school. I would get myself in trouble and get into in-school suspensions. So they would put me in a little closet in the principal's office and I could just do my work in peace. When I was in foster care, when I had some amount of control over my life, I dropped out of school. And it wasn't long after that, that I actually moved out of my parents' house too. At that point, I didn't even want them 
to be a part of anything because I felt so abandoned and disconnected from them. So I found a terrible little apartment for like $200 a month in a terrible part of town. It was like the only place that would rent to a teenager, (laughs) but but by golly, it was my own, (laughs) you know, And, and that was all that mattered. I was on my own. And for the first time, I had like just this little space in my life where I got to just be me. Mm -hmm. My parents were no longer there. I didn't have to impress them. I had a group of of friends that I just enjoyed being myself with. And so it was a a really tiny little space of my life where I at least got to try to be authentic. I don't know how much I figured out at that point, but I at least had the space to try. And then right around that time too, because I felt lost, because I felt like, where do I belong in this world and who am I anyway? I started going back to try to find my biological family because I felt like somehow that would give me the answers. I I don't know, like maybe I would finally feel like I belonged somewhere or I would get answers as to, you know, I don't know exactly what I was looking for. I think as teenagers, we're just searching anyway. I got a question in that you say you were adopted and Mm -hmm. then you're your, your your adopted parents were doing, they loved you and they did what they, they thought was best for you. Did you at any time when they put you in the foster care, did you, the abandonment, did you think it's because, I'm going to ask a question. Did you think they'd abandoned you because you didn't really belong to them? I don't think so. I no. think even, okay. I think I even recognized that they were just scared and didn't know what to do. Okay. But even at that age, I still... I didn't really hold it against. I was angry, but I I didn't, I don't think it was that at all. I did spend a lot of time wondering what life would have been like had I not been given up for adoption. I wondered what that family was like. And I just, I was really Teenagers are curious. Exactly. So I started looking for my biological family as soon as I turned 18, because um, it was a closed adoption. So I didn't have names or anything. And you have to wait till you're 18 to start searching. So like, on my 18th birthday, I sent out letters and emails and all of the, you know, just starting the process. Nothing really came of it for quite a while. But also when I was 18, I met the man who would be my first husband. Um, and he was a couple of years older. So I met him at 18. I was pregnant and married at 19 and had my first daughter when I was 20. So again, I was essentially just a baby still having a baby. I mean, 20 is really young. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't have any regrets. I mean, I was a really mature 20 in a lot of ways, not emotionally, but I was really good at, at you know, managing life. I was um, 17. Oh, were you? I wow. Got, yeah, I was 17 when I was married, 19 when I had my first and 20 wow. when I had my second. Yeah. So, yeah. So you definitely relate, but. Yep. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. But you, you sound as though you were an extremely mature young lady, even with all those issues and emotional turmoil going on in your life. You were strong enough to start figuring things out for yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, at 17 years old, I was paying my own bills. I was holding two jobs. I was, I mean, I was doing everything that an adult would do. And I was, you know, I mean, reasonably successful for a 17 year old kid and then got married So the man that I married, I I even remember like saying my vows, thinking this is not what I want to do with the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. But I figured that was the best I was going to be able to do. My self-esteem was so low and I had so little hope for anything better that I just went ahead and married him. You said Uh, 
I did. I settled. And, you know, he's, he's a great guy. He was not the one for me. And I knew that in my heart from the very beginning, there was never any question. I knew that I was just settling because I didn't have enough faith in myself to believe that I deserved any better or that I deserved real happiness. But I think a lot of us do that to some extent. So we have a baby now at 20 years old. He was 22. I was 20. And I grew up a lot because that's what you do when you have a baby. And he just didn't. He just never, you know, that, that, that's what you do. You have a child and then you start acting a little bit more grown up. And he never really reached that point. So, I mean, he was still smoking pot all the time. And it, that was something I didn't really do. He was smoking pot all the time. He would like actually throw like temper tantrums if he didn't get his way. And he didn't really even know how to deal with that. And he was as emotionally underdeveloped as I was. Um, blind leading the blind. <laughs> it really was. It was. I mean, we were just terrible from the beginning. Like there was no hope for us. You know, he really hated going to work. I had to, you know, drag him out of bed and beg him to go to work. I essentially had to parent him. My daughter was born three months premature. Mm -hmm. So she was in the hospital for three months. And then she was basically plugged into a wall for the first year of her life on mm -hmm. monitors and feeding tubes and things. So I really couldn't work. And I was also nursing. So I needed to be the one that was there to feed her. So it was up to him to go to work. And I mean, I would not sleep all night and wake up or, you know, get up and, and try to get him to go to work. It was, it was exhausting and it was depressing. And I was just really sad. And on the outside, I was still trying to make it look perfect. Like we were great. Like everything yeah. was wonderful. Back on went the mask. Exactly. I mean, I don't think it ever really came off. You know, as soon as I got pregnant and married and told my parents, it was like, all right, I went back to being perfect again, as perfect as I could possibly be. Make them proud of me. Make them happy for me. Never tell them when I was struggling emotionally or financially or just in, in any way. I just tried to make it look perfect. And on the inside, I was so so sad it was it was that. a I hate yeah. that heavy it, it's such a heavy feeling to carry around yes that inner sadness it, it weighs you down and the fact that you've got a new baby who needs so much of you and the father who is supposed to be an adult behaving as badly as any small toddler right yeah, I was I essentially felt like I was parenting a special needs infant and also a teenager. And I was 20 years old, you know, so it was an adult. Right. It was just it was too much. I was miserable. I was sad. And I also just felt trapped. That was the best I could do. I got myself into that situation. I wasn't going to admit that it wasn't perfect. So I just decided that's how it was going to be. And I tried to be OK with it. And, you know, I don't know. I tried to talk myself into to believing that it was all okay. I tried to talk myself into feeling happy, even though I wasn't. I was also right around that time when my daughter was born, I think maybe she was about a year old, when I finally actually found my biological family. I had put a bunch of information out in all these different registries and they decided to come searching for me. And so we were matched up and I got to meet them. And the one thing, I mean, they're, they're really nice people. I actually still keep in touch with them. I gained a couple of grandmothers and grandfathers that were, they didn't even know I existed. And so they were just thrilled to have one more granddaughter to love. Really, really great people. The one thing I did start learning about was that on my birth mom's side, there was a really serious history of addiction, abuse, 
and those were things that were just foreign to me because this, remember I had grown up in like this perfect mm-hmm. little yeah. family. So the idea of any of that was just foreign. I, I just didn't even know what that really meant or what that looked like. But, you know, they were, they were young when they had me, they were both using drugs at that point. Eventually my birth dad got out of all of that, but she really struggled the rest of her life with especially alcohol addiction, Yeah, putting herself into, you know, abusive relationships. And, and I, I learned a lot about that part of my family at that point too, um, which really didn't affect me at that moment. But, you know, obviously looking back now, I, it, it should have been some kind of clue yeah do you think um it was on her part you know your birth mother's part back to this low self-esteem and wanting to be accepted oh I'm sure to some extent yeah just feeling badly about herself you know who knows what uh and you know we I didn't talk to her I never did meet her and she's not alive anymore I never had the opportunity to meet her she lived all the way across the country I didn't really have the money to go visit her. She didn't really have the money to come visit me. And it just never happened. Um, so I didn't get the opportunity to maybe know her truly, like on a, you know, below the surface kind of level that I, I really would have liked to. But how much of giving a child up for adoption does that devastate you? I mean, all of the emotions that must go with that. Can you There's- imagine? I mean, you're a mom now. I mean, could you imagine having to part with your daughter at birth? Right. Yeah. And the guilt and the shame and, you know, they kept it a secret. So it wasn't something that she ever worked through. And there was just so much there. I don't, I don't know why she drank the way that she did, but she did. Yeah. It was, it was about that time. I want to say my, my oldest daughter was about three years old when I started actually started drinking and it was very much just a social thing. I went out with friends. We went to the bar we went to the club. We had a night, you know, a girl's night out and I would drink and and have a good time. And I realized at that point that I could escape a little bit. I could let loose. And I'd never done that before. Freedom. Yeah. Or just, just a freedom from all the heaviness that was my life just for one night, you know? And I, I mean, I learned early on right at that point, I don't have an off switch, but it never felt like something I needed. It's just that once I did go out, I was the one that was drinking and drinking and drinking and didn't stop. And I kind of didn't realize that that wasn't normal because I was hanging out with a lot of other people who also had very faulty off switches. So, you know, I didn't have any drinking experience. I figured that was normal. That's what you do when you're 21, 22. And you fit in. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we were having fun. You know, you drink a little bit, you start laughing, all of the weight lifts, you feel lighthearted. And for me, that was huge. That was the, the first time that I had been able to release any of what I was feeling. So, I mean, it was, you know, it was maybe like, weekly that we'd go out. It wasn't more than that, but boy, I sure looked forward to it because that was my escape. And then while I was, you know, doing those weekly girls nights, I ended up meeting the man who is now my husband. Absolutely amazing guy. Met him at a bar. He was like, he's just incredible. Like I could go on and on about what an amazing guy he is, but I mean, it didn't take long for me to realize I didn't want to be settled anymore. Like there was something better and that's what I wanted. And so went through the divorce and, you know, it wasn't even, I don't think it was even a shock to my first husband. I was, he knew how unhappy I was. So it it wasn't a big production. We didn't, you know, own a home. It was whatever. We just, we kind of worked out the custody thing. It was a really, really easy divorce. And I immediately moved in with my husband. So I went from one set of expectations to another one. I never Mm -hmm. 
never took a break, never stepped back to just be me, to regroup, to recoup, and then become yourself. Yeah, never did. I just, I moved right into, into that relationship. And looking back, it would have been a really wise idea to maybe spend a couple of years being on my own, but there was I was expression. in love and I was yeah, happy. There's, there's an expression <laughs> I've heard and it's like, if we all had hindsight, we'd have foresight. Exactly. So, <laughs> in hindsight, yes. Yeah. But I'm a great believer that these, these things happen for reasons. And I, I suppose I'm a fatalist. I don't know what you would call me. Someone off a trolley, actually, most days. But I, um, I think that, uh, I think that we, we go through these things. It's, it's a growing phase. And like you say, you've gone through a lot with, um, what happened when you were 16, trying to get to fit in and then leaving home at 17, getting pregnant, getting ma- well, getting married, getting pregnant. And then moving from that straight away, like you say, into the relationship with your, your current husband. You, you mm-hmm. look, sounds like the love of your life, your soulmate. Yes, absolutely. Um, we only get, I think, well, I'm lucky I've had two. Um, but uh it, we never give ourselves a chance. And I think a lot of that comes with the maturity. And when we start looking at the things we've done in those years, and we learn, and I think it, it probably makes us better parents because we now know the pitfalls. We can now right. speak from experience. You saying you you didn't get the chance to become you, right? So how soon after you were together did uh, little one number two come along? It, it was pretty quick. Um, <laughs> so we didn't really waste a lot of time. Yeah. So I mean, I went into to this second marriage with a whole new set of expectations, you know, and some of them I think were his expectations as far as what a wife would be like. Some were expectations I put on myself. So it just, it was like a brand new mask and still never really authentically me. When I met him, we started, we we drank more. It was still not out of control. It was that cool adult hobby, you know, where you drink the micro brews and you try all the different wines and it was just cool. And I felt very adult and grown up and um, sophisticated and whatever. So alcohol, I guess maybe kind of snuck in a little bit there, but not to any excess. Not by any means, not to the point where I was dependent on it. And then shortly after that, I had my second daughter. So she was four years younger than my first. And the pressure mounted, you know, now you've got two little ones. And then my husband has for pretty much the entirety of our marriage worked out of town. So he would be gone for about two weeks at a time. And then he would be home for a week or he'd be, I mean, maybe even working locally, but working enough hours that I barely saw him anyway. So I was essentially on my own with two little girls and then he'd be home for a week and and relieve some of that. And then he'd be gone again. And it was exhausting. That's a lot for a very young mom to have two little girls, depending on her full time without a break. You know, I would, I would just drink one or two, but that was definitely my escape at the end of the night. And it got to the point where I was drinking daily then because that's how I could just relax a little bit, just, you know, decompress. I, that's all I knew. I didn't, it didn't occur to me there were any other options. And, you know, I was lonely because he was gone all the time. 
I was exhausted because motherhood is exhausting. And then I still just felt like there was this pressure to make everything look so perfect. You know, the, my girls always had their hair combed perfectly and were always dressed perfectly. And, well, that's how I was raised, right? That was exactly what it looked like. And I thought, you know, that's how it's supposed to look. And so, yeah, it was just very much that expectation, that trying to be perfect, never giving myself any space for failure. I also homeschooled my kids. So, you know, I mean, when the the oldest was five, we started homeschooling on top of everything else. Plus he was gone all the time. And it was just a lot of pressure. It was a lot of pressure for a mama who was 25 years old and was just tired and overwhelmed. And, you know, I was, I, I don't even want to say I was necessarily unhappy. I was just just so overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I coped with that was drinking and it wasn't, you know, I'd wait till the kids were in bed and I'd have a glass, maybe two of wine. And that was it. Outside of that, I really still didn't drink other than, you know, maybe have one. We went out for dinner or something. And then I guess it was like four, my youngest was four. So four years of that, we moved to where we live now. So we have like a little 40 acre farm and we got animals because that's what you do when you have a farm. And and that was something I really wanted to do. I was really excited about it, you know? So now we have chickens and then we got goats and then we got ducks and then we got a milk cow and then we got beef cows and then we got horses. And then somehow we went from moving up here with one dog and one cat to, you know, about, about 50 animals that were under my care. In addition to homeschooling. So, I was going to say, you got, you're already overwhelmed with right. children and While my doing it on your own. And yeah. now you've got a farm. <laughs> yeah. And I don't even know why that seemed like a good idea to me. It was, no, I do. I absolutely do. It's because I'm an overachiever and I wanted it to, you know, that was one more chance to stand out and make it look amazing so that I could get words of affirmation so that I could feel like I was worthy. The um, addict mind, we've got to go at everything 110%. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's no moderation. <clears throat> we don't moderate yeah. anything. <laughs> that is the truth. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, mm. for sure. So yeah, I mean, everything that I was feeling before, the exhaustion, the loneliness, the homeschooling, the pressure, add to that 40 acres with a whole bunch of animals. My kids got really involved in 4-H. So of course I took on a bunch of volunteer positions. I was giving every ounce of energy that I had to anything that would essentially gain, I don't know, make me feel like I, I had more worth. You were um, giving 110% energy to everything else except yourself. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That's a, an, an excellent way to put that. Never occurred to just take care of me. All of my energy went to hoping that people would like me or think highly of me because that was, that's external validation. So it was during that time, like about the time we moved up here that I started drinking more and more. And, you know, it was frequently, and most of the time it was still after they were in bed, but it went from one or two glasses of wine to a whole bottle of wine very often. I didn't very often drink while they were still up until, I don't know, maybe a few years went by. Then I was like, oh, well, you know, all moms drink wine. So I'll start drinking wine at five o'clock. Then I could make my way through two bottles of wine in an evening. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's just kind of how it went. It really started ramping up. I just needed to feel the escape, the release of all the pressure to not care for a little while. Alcohol is so insidious and it's like everything. One glass, that's just the taster. Once you've got Mm -hmm. the alcohol in your system in the way that we had it, 
you can't taste anything. You get, you could, I said to someone, I could be drinking vinegar. I wouldn't know it. Right. Because by the time I got to the end and I knew I really had to do something, I was just drinking alcohol for this, you know, so that I could black out so that I didn't have to cope with any of it. Mm -hmm. Same for you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It got to the point where, I mean, I was, it definitely just snuck up on me, but I mean, it would, I'd, I'd be hungover every day. And, you know, I remember waking up in the morning, needing to take my daughter to a dentist appointment and feeling like I probably still shouldn't be driving because I'd had so much the night before. I'm sure I wouldn't have passed a a breathalyzer, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I I remember that on more than one occasion, um, having to drive and we live about an hour from any doctors or groceries or anything. So anytime we leave the house, we're driving an hour up and down windy Canyon roads. And I was doing it hungover enough that I think I was actually still drunk. I remember reading bedtime stories to them, you know, and I I would read out loud from different books every night. That was just something that I felt like was really important as a homeschool mom. And then the next night I would sit down to start reading again. And they'd be like, mom, you already read this chapter last night. And I didn't even have any recollection of having done that, you know, so many different or slurring your words while you're trying to read the story. And, and all of these things added up to this incredible amount of shame because no one knew that I was drinking like that. Uh, My husband had no idea because he was gone all the time. So when he was home, I just kept it together for a week or I would hide it. And there was so much shame that came with that because I knew what I was doing. Like I knew at that point I had a problem. So then the way that I tried to fix that or cope with it was just to hit the perfectionism even harder. Like I I'm, I'm, have a problem with alcohol. Now I need to work even harder to prove my value and to prove my worth. And so it was just this constant cycle. You know, you feel bad. You have the shame. So you drink to make it go away, but then that makes you feel bad. And then you, you know, try to drink. It's just, it kept going. It's what we've all, um, and as women, we need to prove ourselves as, um, we look at me, I can drink two bottles of wine at night and I can get up the next morning. My kids are dressed, washed, had their breakfast. They're on their way to school. My house is nice and clean. The laundry's done. The groceries are in the cupboard. It's like this, need to prove ourselves all the time yeah and it's a burden it's a heavy burden to carry around oh yeah it's it's impossible I mean you just you end up just crushing yourself and that's all I was doing and you know I I thought I was getting the release from alcohol but all it was doing was compounding everything and making the burden even heavier and I just didn't realize that I think we don't see that we're in the mid when we're in the midst of it that it's just making everything worse you know that's your release and and they tell you that's what moms do. They drink wine. That's how you relax. And, you know, it's just expected. And I know I, I, we could probably both go on, yeah. on that for a long time. Yeah. God, the but, advertisement industry hits women hard. Oh, it does. You it deserve does. this. Yeah. Right. And the times I sat there in the, in the evenings and say, I've earned this today. And what made me think I'd earned it? Right. The fact that I dragged my ass through the day with it was hangover. <laughs> exactly. But here you go, because you did a great job. Have some mm-hmm. more. Yeah. It's just, it's the most insane cycle that you just don't even see when you're in the middle of it. You know, it's, I don't, it's just exhausting. And you add to that, all of the sneaking around, all of the hiding, you know, I would, I don't work. Right. So I didn't, I had to find ways to get more alcohol than he knew about without him knowing. And so, I mean, I was, 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I couldn't, he couldn't see the bills at the liquor store every day or he would know exactly what was going on. And so, you know, I mean, I would make little bits of money here and there. I would buy alcohol at the grocery store. So it just went on the, the grocery bill instead of, you know, the liquor store or whatever. So, and then like hiding bottles everywhere. I remember like I had different places that I would stash bottles and then I'd be so afraid while I was out of the house that he would suddenly open that cupboard for no reason or, you know, for whatever reason, the cupboard he had never opened and then see every, you know, all of the bottles that were there and, and discover what was actually going on. Back it was to the just, double life. Yeah, exactly. And it was just exhausting. All of the, the hiding, all of the mm-hmm. shame, all of the lies, everything. It's just, it just weighs you down. So Yeah. I basically just felt stuck. And then it was during that, during all of the, you know, it just got worse and worse that I found out that my birth mom died and, you know, we weren't close, but I got the story and I, I could be wrong on all of the details here, but essentially what happened was she had gone out into the woods to go hiking or something. Nobody really knows why she was out there and fell and broke her neck because she was so drunk and laid there for who knows how long. And then she was found dead. And that was like a gut punch for me. Mm -hmm. I realized how serious it could be. And so at that point I realized I needed to quit and it took some time, but I realized I needed to quit drinking. And so the day that I, and this is, so I, I'm working on my second round of sobriety. So this is all the first round of sobriety. Yeah. I, you know, I had started drinking early that day. I, at this point I was drinking box wine because you can just keep walking by and filling your glass and you never really know how much you've consumed anyway. <laughs> so, you know, you have to pull that plastic bag out and squeeze the last bit. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, oh I mean, I was, God. I was, you know, I was, I was drinking box wine and I was on the phone with my grandmother, her mom and started hearing some more, more details of the story. And at that point I was three sheets to the winds. And I was like, I can't keep drinking. So I told her I have an alcohol problem and she was very loving. I mean, she, you know, her, her husband, my grandfather had an alcohol problem before he died. And she was, you know, she's well-versed in alcoholism. And so she was just very supportive and essentially said, I'm glad to hear that you want to quit. Let me know if I can help. And then when I got off the phone with her, I called my husband. He was actually asleep. He was like working night shift. I called him wherever he was at some hotel. And I was like, I have to quit drinking. I have to quit. I can't keep living like this. Um, and I was I was absolutely drunk when I said all of these things. But I w- went to sleep that night. I woke up in the morning and I was like, okay, I quit. I'm not going to drink anymore. And I didn't. I made it 14 months without drinking another drop. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done. I was did it completely alone. I never told anyone that I had a problem. Even my husband, he just thought I was, I, I never said I am an alcoholic. I have an alcohol problem. Nothing. I just said, I have to quit drinking. I never really explained why. And I don't think he took it that seriously. It was more just as she's taking a break or whatever. So nobody knew what I was going through. Nobody knew about the withdrawals. Nobody knew about the struggling to cope with anything that comes with early sobriety. I did it completely alone. I was, you, I mean, I, you say it's not your first, this is not your first um, go around with sobriety. And I think a lot of us have, we've had more than one attempt at getting sober. And all I can say about my first stint of really getting sober was I wasn't sober. Yeah. I just wasn't drinking. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
I was so ashamed. So just filled with shame. Like I just kept thinking like, I can't be this person. I'm not the kind of person who is an alcoholic. Like I was just so ashamed. I didn't want to talk to anybody because I didn't want to have to say the words out loud. I didn't want to have to admit it to anyone because Again, perfectionism, that doesn't paint a real pretty picture, right? So I kept it to myself completely. I had a therapist. I did go find a therapist and she was lovely. She did help, not a whole lot. She wasn't an addiction therapist. She was just somebody to help me work through life issues. And I I did, I walked into her office and I was like, I don't have any coping skills and I need you to give me some. (laughs) Um, How honest were were you with her? I was completely honest with her. I was desperate to feel better and I didn't hold anything back. And, you know, I, I think I saw her really solidly for maybe about six months. I was, I was a few months in before I even found her, but I was completely honest. And I got so much out of that experience. You know, she didn't have a lot in, as far as addiction to offer, but as far as coping with life, I learned so much from her that I still apply all the time. And I'm so grateful that I did that. The alcohol comes towards the end. It's what started it in the young years. Yes. That's the part that has to be addressed. The alcohol is a separate issue. Yes. And it is the result of what happened many years before. So right. if, you're, if you're addressing those kind of things and getting the coping skills, hopefully it moves on and helps you cope with the alcohol withdrawal and right. up drink. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that definitely helped. And then I guess like I I was still just missing self-worth and she would tell me you have worth just because you are here. And I knew that in my head, but there was like this head heart disconnect where I didn't really believe that. (laughs) And I, I, I'm still, uh, I'm in a much better place now than I was then. And I still struggle with that. I still fall back into that, but you know, you hit this point in sobriety and everybody hits it at a different point, but at a different time frame. but it's like the what now moment. Like you've quit drinking. You're no longer, you know, it's not the, the first thing you think about when you wake up and the last thing you think about it, when you go to bed, you've quit drinking. It's, it's mostly easy, except, you know, you're, you've learned how to cope with the cravings. What now? Like, what else is there? Because you know that there's something else going to have to happen because you're still not feeling like, you know, life's in control. And so that's when I started trying to do the work. That's where you talk about, you know, not being sober. Mm-hmm. And I tried, I knew something had to happen. I read a lot of Brene Brown. I'm guessing you're probably her. familiar with her. I love her. her. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I love her. She's wonderful. And she talks a lot about authenticity. And mm-hmm. so I was like, oh my God, the idea of authenticity, that was brand new to me. I realized at that point that I had not never been authentic as, as long as I could remember. And then she starts getting into the idea of vulnerability and speaking honestly and openly about things. And that's the antidote to shame, right? So I'm like, you're supposed to talk openly about the things you're ashamed of. And that's supposed to make you feel better. And I was like, huh, well, I'm not going to do that, but I wonder if I can still be authentic. Uh, yeah. Can I do half the work? Well, that's exactly. the same result. <laughs> right. Well, I, very much a part of it was, I just didn't yeah. even know how to do that. I didn't know I think a lot what of that it is, like. It's a, we know these things, but it's actually admitting it to ourselves and accepting it. That is the hard part. Right. Comes down to the acceptance of who we are. We're like 
like your therapist said, you're worthy. We are worthy. Mm -hmm. And until we realize that we've got value to someone, you have value to your husband, you have value to your children, you have value to your community, you have value to those animals because they rely on you. So you do have value. And until you truly accept that you've got value in this world, it's hard to come to that place where you get comfortable within yourself. Right. Yeah. Well, that's until you really realize that you have value, no matter what happens, you're not going to admit to the ugly bits. That's the stuff you don't want anyone to see. Right. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be mostly authentic <laughs> and then I'll just hide the stuff about me that I don't like. I'll right. That was mask my mask off. <laughs> exactly. Which as we all know, was completely useless. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. I, but I, I was making an effort. I just didn't know what a lot of that looked like or what it, where to find the place to even be vulnerable or who to try to talk to. Like there was some of that I think I would have considered doing if I'd felt like I had a place for it or, you know, just had, had some guidance. I felt like I needed a roadmap. Like, here's what it's supposed to look like. This is what you need to do. And I just didn't really, I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So I tried so hard to do the work of sobriety. I just didn't have, I I didn't have anybody to talk to. I had nobody with more experience than me to give me suggestions or guidance. I was just trying to figure it out on my own. And I mean, I, I gave it a valiant effort, but I was just kind of stuck and kind of, you know, floating around and lost. And, you know, I did, I, I made it 14 months. I made it through my grandmother passing away. My husband got laid off when COVID hit. I made it through a good chunk Mm -hmm. of COVID. I made it through all of the holidays. I went on an amazing vacation to Iceland where I was sure that I had to drink, but I didn't. Now I've got envy. (laughs) I have got envy. It was amazing. I highly recommend it. (laughs) These are all things that at some point I thought I can't make it through these things without drinking. And I did. And I gained a lot of confidence at that, through that 14 months, realizing you can do hard things and not drink. And, And I didn't lose that necessarily when I relapsed. I, get, I, I at least had the confidence. Yes, you can do things that are really hard. And then I, I know they always say that like a, a relapse gets planned, like you're planning it for days ahead. I don't remember doing that at all. I remember coming home and I'd had a bad day and it wasn't even a terribly bad day. It was just, you know, not a great day. I was like, huh, there's beer in the fridge downstairs. I think I'll have one. And I grabbed one and I slammed it. And then I was like, oh, I feel so much better now. And then that was it. That was my relapse. All it takes. Just one drink. And I didn't even think about it. I didn't tell anybody that I was going to drink. I didn't, I mean, not that anybody, you know, really knew anyway. I just, I just didn't even really process it. I was like, it was that habit where you're just like, I've had a bad day. I don't feel good. I'm going to have a drink. And like after 14 months, that habit was still there. Um, and I didn't even take the time to second guess what I was doing. And so after all of that time, I, uh, I started drinking again and it took a long time for it to ramp up. It was like for months. I was like, okay, I clearly am fixed and I can moderate, you know, and, and it started increasing and getting to me. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to make rules for myself. You know, that, that whole thing that if you're making rules, mental gymnastics, exactly. Yeah. If you're making rules for when you drink, you have a problem. So I, you know, I, oh, well, I'm only going to drink on weekends. I'm only going to have two drinks that, you know, what I started making the rules for myself because I was fixed. I could moderate. Right. And it it started ramping up and getting out of control. And I decided that I needed to quit. I don't know, like it was about five months in and I would, I would go three or four days and then I would drink again. And, I, and then I realized, oh, maybe this is more out of control than I thought it was. 
And I still, I was mostly keeping it together. I wasn't really over the top getting drunk all the time, but I realized maybe I needed to figure things out. So at that point I was six months in and mostly moderating and my dog who was like my very best friend was killed by my neighbor. I was just in the kitchen. I was making pancakes for dinner with my 14 year old. And, you know, we were having this great night and my cousin, my, my husband calls and says, hope is dead. And I fell apart. Um, anybody who knows me knows like my love for my dogs is probably excessive, but she was my best friend, my best buddy. She was always there with me. Um, she was like, I was, um, she was a rescue dog. Actually, I had rescued her from an alcoholic and I, part of, you know, I, I got sober with her and Do you feel it was, like, I, I always wonder if we have spirit animals because animals come to us at a certain time. I think that she showed up in my life for exactly the reason that she did mm-hmm. because she was abused by this man. And that was always in the back of my head. Like I saved her from an alcoholic. I have, I owe her more than this, you know, which sounds, I mean, I owed my whole family, but, but I just had a connection with that dog. Like they call it your heart dog. It's the, you know, the one that, that is, you're never going to have another connection with another animal like that one. It was, it was an honestly traumatic experience. It was, I mean, she was four well, they years are old. A mem- yeah. They're a member of your family. They are part right. of you. You love right. them the same way as you love your children and your husband, yes. whatever. Yeah. So it, it's natural that you're going to be absolutely heartbroken and devastated. And we've got a lot of dog lovers within our sober community. Right. A lot of them ladies like you, and they would be absolutely gutted and devastated. Right. Yeah. And I was, it was, it was absolutely a trauma. Um, looking back on it now, it was, you know, completely a shock, completely unexpected. Losing an animal is really hard to begin with, but to have it be so sudden, just have no idea that it's coming. And, and I don't have any coping skills, right? All I know, I mean, I tried for that 14 months to develop coping skills, but I didn't, wasn't super successful. And then with alcohol on the table as a possible coping skill, that's the first one I go to. That's the easy one. That one doesn't take as much effort. Mm-hmm. It was already there. And so that night I went and bought a bottle of whiskey and I drank the whole thing. And I woke up in the morning and I went back and I bought another bottle of whiskey and I drank half of it before my husband took it away. And I didn't process her death. I didn't know how. I didn't, I did not cope. I just drank. And from that point on for the next six months, I just drank. I went from mostly moderating to waking up in the morning and slamming a couple of beers before I went downstairs to have my coffee. I was, you know, driving my kids drunk to different places if that's what I needed to do. Um, and I, you know, I, I tried to keep that under control, but I'm not going to say I succeeded very well. Children and are very perceptive. They are. I don't know that my kids had any idea. They've never said anything to that effect because I, well, and my husband didn't have any idea. I'm, you know, we always say like, I thought I was hiding it, but I know everybody knew. I don't think anybody knew. It came as a shock to everyone that I was as out of control as I was. But I definitely, I mean, I was, there were so many times that I didn't remember the day by the time evening came, my husband would come home and ask what I did during the day. And I wouldn't even have an answer for him. I had no idea. I couldn't remember what I had done. And by the end, it was easily eight to 10 beers a day, 
sometimes shots of whiskey. I had whiskey bottles hidden in the closet. So if he was home, I would just go into the, the closet and act like I was going to get some laundry or something and, and take some swigs out of the bottle. And he had no idea. I don't know how he had no idea, but he didn't. And I really had no intention of even trying to quit at that point. I hurt too bad. I was, you know, it was six months later, but I was still just reeling over the loss of my dog, hating everything in light. Like, and, and when you drink, it's, it's all compounded, right? So everything that was yeah. bad was made a thousand times worse. So all of the loneliness and the exhaustion and the pressure and everything else, coupled with losing the dog, coupled with really excessive amounts of alcohol. And it just, it felt impossible to overcome any of that. So I didn't even bother trying really. Yeah. My, I was like a shell of a human at that point. Um, I was still doing everything I was supposed to do. I still looked great on the outside and I was an absolute mess. Broken on the inside. Absolutely broken. Yeah. What was your catalyst? What was your catalyst? Yeah. What was your catalyst that made you actually? So it all culminated in what I think I can honestly say might be the worst day of my life. I had been drinking all day, which was not abnormal. My oldest daughter came home and she was just bratty and she had an attitude and she mouthed off to me and I got mad. And of course I got much more angry than I needed to because I was already drinking. And so I got in my car and decided I was going for a drive. And I live out in the country. We have dirt roads everywhere. You know, it's, there's this one particular loop that I'm definitely not the only person that's driven that while they're drunk. And I went out and drove this loop. It's like four or five miles. And I, you know, I told myself it was because I was clearing my head. I don't even know what the hell I was doing. I, I mean, I couldn't think clearly. I was, I was. You really don't think drunk. when you're in that kind of state, do you? No, no. And it, it was absolute rage. It was drunken rage, which really wasn't my, my style. Then I got in the car and I drove and I was driving way too fast and eventually went around a corner, failed to navigate the corner, hit a ditch, hit a fence post, totaled my car. I was fine. I was alone. Thank God nobody was with me. And there were so many other places that I could have actually like fallen off of the road and died. So the fact that it happened where it did was a blessing. I was so drunk. I mean, most of that is actually like blacked out. I remember little bits and snippets of it. I remember thinking that I was not the kind of person who wrecked her car while she was drunk, because that's just not how I ever would have imagined myself. So I called my husband. He was home to come and get me. I told him what had happened. He had no idea I'd even been drunk all day. And he brought my oldest daughter with him when they came to get me. And I flew off the handle and said more horrible things to that poor girl it's it's completely unimaginable how awful I was to her. I told her I hated her. I, I blamed everything on her because in my drunken mind, somehow that made sense. And I, I mean, I absolutely devastated her at that point. Like the, the amount of trauma that I know that I caused is still just breaks my heart. Well, you're and, a mom and you've hurt your own child. And that is, that goes against everything. It does. It does. Being a mom um, is, and I think that we do reach a point because I, the way I liken a lot of this is, it's like the shape of a spear head, like that mm. triangle shape. And when you start drinking, you've got the wide part, and all of a sudden it starts coming into this huge point. And when it hits that point, that sounds like the night that you had the car accident was when you hit mm-hmm. that point, the pinnacle of the devastation, the feelings, the grief, everything was that right. point with the car accident. Yeah. 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 That was absolutely, that was, that was where it all culminated. 
And I mean, I, I literally wanted to die that night. I just could not. And once I sobered up enough to realize what I had done and what I had said to her and, and all of that, I wanted to die. Like I couldn't imagine there being any way out of the amount of guilt and regret and shame that I felt. And I didn't want to keep feeling it. I mean, I, I didn't do anything to, to try to hurt myself, but I wanted to. I went to bed that night. My husband left for work the next morning. So I had two weeks to spend on my own dealing with all of that. And I didn't drink for those two weeks. And then I started drinking again. Like it was just, I was still stuck in this like relapse cycle. cycle. And I never understood the first time I quit drinking because I just said I quit and I quit for over a year. I never understood those people that were like the chronic relapsers. I never understood that cycle. I discovered it at that point because I didn't want to drink, but I couldn't quit. And I did the, you know, the three days here and the five days there and, and whatever. And I mean, I, that cycle, I was just stuck in it. I, uh, I went on a really long hike. I had been planning this hike for a long time. I was supposed to be with a friend. I ended up going by myself. We had planned to walk like 185 miles over like two weeks. She didn't end up going with me. So I had two weeks to spend alone in, with my own thoughts, figuring a lot of things out. I was terrified to do that, to be by myself like that. And it turned out to be a really good thing for me. Even then. When that hike was over, I went and I bought a six pack of beer and I drank it on the way home. I it's just, that's addiction, right? I knew yeah. I didn't want to drink. And the minute I walked into the store where my car was parked, I went and bought beer because that's just what addiction does. I think you do it unconsciously some of the time, don't you? And you mm-hmm. sit there and you think, hang on a minute. You just bought it and you thought, and you think to yourself, I didn't really want to buy this, but now that I bought it, I better drink it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So I I ended up drinking an entire six pack of beer on like the two hour drive home. So obviously not driving sober and made it home. And then I knew I wanted to quit drinking and I was still stuck in the cycle. And I found, I, I had actually found the IAS app previously, never really did much with it. I just, you know, I was using it as a counter and then I kind of found the community thing. And there was one morning and it was a couple of weeks after I got home from that hike I woke up and I slammed a couple of beers and then I got on the app because I, I don't even know why, I guess, because I felt bad for drinking beer first thing in the morning and somebody had posted a picture to the zoom meetings. Like at this point, I'd never used zoom in my life. I had no idea what that even was, but I was like, I'm going to try this. Um, And I think the only reason I tried it probably was because I was still a little bit buzzed and I was just desperate for whatever. And so it, I was terrified. Again, the shame. I didn't want anybody to associate my face or my name with alcoholism because I was so ashamed of it. And it took a while for me to finally turn my camera on and actually interact. And I did finally, that drifter loves this story, but I finally just, I was in a breakout room. There were like four people in there. I turned my camera on. I still kept my mic off. I was still afraid to talk. And it was Lee, Lilo, who (laughs) um, I don't know what he saw because I didn't say anything, but he could see that I needed to hear something. And to this day, I don't remember what he said, but for half an hour, he sat there and talked to me while I just cried silently. And he said everything I needed to hear for the first time to just not feel like I was alone. He gave me hope. Um, made me feel like it was possible to overcome even the awful things that I had done. And the rest is history. I kept coming back. I went to every meeting that I could. <laughs> you actually set up the um, parent. Did. And you were pretty early in your sobriety when you started those. 
It was. So I, I went to every meeting I could possibly go to. And and the, the first time I finally turned my mic on, I was like, I talked. I said mm-hmm. the things that I was ashamed of. And at the end of it, I felt better. I felt lighter. And I never could have imagined that that, that really worked, that the vulnerability is the antidote to shame. And I experienced it for the first time there. And I heard other people tell stories that were similar to things that I had lived. And they were just saying them. They weren't hiding it. They weren't ashamed of it. Or they were, but they, but they were still willing to talk about it. And it just so much was lifted in those breakout rooms. And I think, uh, I think a lot of it is we say it because we know we're going to get support, that we're not going to be judged for what we've said and done during these times. Right. And also it's a way to um, explore ourselves and uh, listen to other people as well. Yeah. Well, and it, it's just the connection. It's connecting yeah. with other people and feeling like you're being seen. For the first time in my life, I was authentic. I was real. That I was hiding nothing. I just showed up as I was and I was accepted. And I just felt so much lighter because of it. I felt so much hope. It was actually after that meeting when I had, had two beers that morning and then I sat there and, and Lilo talked to me. I never did drink again after that. That was the last May I say that now you're working to be sober? Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the community involvement for sure does a lot. And I got involved, like you said, I, I started the parents zooms on Thursdays. So I just was dealing with a lot of guilt and grief and everything else over all the things that I'd done as a mom. And I needed somebody, I I wanted to talk to somebody to work through some of that. And Mm -hmm. I posted about it a bit and it turned out there were a lot of other people that felt a lot of those same things. So we started meeting. And so I I got really involved in the community really early. I was a month in maybe less when I hosted my first zoom, the one that I started with Anders, a friend. I, yeah. And then, you know, from there I got, got on telegram and I started really connecting with people one-on-one and getting to know, you know, building actual friendships based on authenticity instead of based on trying to get them to like me in whatever way that I could. And then eventually got into podcasting. So now I have got a couple of different podcasts and now we're like working on our own website and it's, yeah. So a lot of good stuff comes out when you get sober and you said, when the first time you got sober and you thought that, wow, what now? When you actually get sober, you don't even think, well, what next? What now? Right. What now is now. Right. This yeah. is it. and the, the, This is the best thing in the world. Right. I mean, I was lucky I didn't start until late in life, but I missed 20 years of my life yeah. doing that. So now I've, and you can't get those years back and I have to accept that I can't get those back. You have been rebuilding your relationship with your daughter. I have. After that night. I have. Yeah. I, it started with me writing a letter to her that essentially said everything that I wanted to say, that I, I, I owned everything I did that night. I just said, I was wrong. I did these things. I'm apologizing. I was so often one to say, well, um, you did this and it made me act this way. I would always find a way to take the blame off of myself. And and that might've been the very first time that I just owned my fault. 
And I sat down with her and I, I mean, I, I read her the letter. So I wrote the letter because I knew that if I just sat down to talk to her, I would forget everything that I wanted to say. I am a writer. That's what I do. And so I wrote everything that I needed her to hear. And then I sat down and I read it to her and she cried and I cried and the healing started then we're not fixed. We're six months in it's, it's about six months after, well, I guess, I don't know, seven, eight months now since yeah. that, since that night. But I mean, time heals things. I communicate openly with her. Now I talk to her about how I'm feeling, give her space to do the same thing. And that's something that we just never really had before. Cause I didn't know how to demonstrate that for her. But Cause you'd never had it. Exactly. But now you are doing for her what you wanted to be done for you. Exactly. Yeah. You're allowing her, you say vulnerability was, to me, vulnerability is a superpower. Yes. But there's no two ways around it. Vulnerability is a superpower. And you allowing your daughter to be vulnerable, mm-hmm. she's going to be an amazing adult. Right. Because just, she's allowed to express those emotions yeah. freely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just gives her, it's so empowering. To be told, you can say whatever you need to say, and you're going to be accepted and loved. And she's still figuring that out. In fact, we sat down last night and he had another talk. We were just, you know, in the kitchen doing whatever. And all of a sudden she decided she wanted to talk. And so, I mean, we sat there for an hour and she poured her heart out. And I'm so glad that she can, that she feels like she can. And it's still awkward for both of us. We're both really bad at communicating our feelings. But you're both young. Because I mean, you were young when you became a mom for the first time. Right. So you're not that much older. I know. (laughs) You know, she's not that much younger than you were when you became a mom for the first time. So you're both young. Yeah. So you are going to be able to have such a beautiful relationship with her. That is the hope. Yeah. Like I, I, I have so much hope in that right now. It is very much work. It's very tentative. We are both just cautiously moving forward in this together, which is exactly what we need to do. And so I feel like we're in a really good place. It's a really emotional process to try to heal from something as horrible as that night is a very emotional process. And it's not something I ever thought that I would even be able to do sober because those are feelings that hurt. And it's the feelings that hurt that made me drink maybe more than any other. And so it is, It is. we're both just being very cautious and very tentative. She's feeling me out to see how much she can trust me. And I'm feeling her out to see you know, how much she wants from me, how much she wants to let me in, because I have to earn that back now. And like and, I say, hope. Yes. Hope started this. Yes. Hope. And hope yeah. is going to get you through it. Yeah. So when you keep saying the word hope, keep seeing hope because hope is going to get you through. And I always say, where there's hope, there's help. Yes. So, I mean, there's always people around to help. You are going to go on and do some amazing things. I've loved listening to you today. I really have. I've loved it. I knew I would love it because when I listen to your podcast, I just love your voice. And so I said, she has the most calming voice on the podcast. I just love listening to your voice. You don't even, I don't even need to listen to what you're saying. It's just, just, (laughs) I feel the same way about you. Honestly, there were times where I was like having, you know, back in really early sobriety where everything was not okay. And I just knew I could turn on a poly podcast (laughs) and it didn't matter what you were saying. It just like calmed me down. (laughs) 
we do these, funny enough, we do the readings and we, some of what you said right at the beginning of this podcast, the reading today was about gossip mm. and uh, it resonated with a lot of people and it, you know, talking about other people, how it can make them feel tiny, yes, tiny, tiny when they hear themselves talked about like that. I don't, and that's the, it's, it's not done in a malicious way with a lot of it because a lot of it comes from young children like we were at one point who don't understand this. But when it's older adults that know better, I get annoyed, I get angry because that hits at self-esteem when someone puts someone down. It gets yes. back to the self-esteem. Yeah. And you, lady, are sober. You're not just not drinking, you are sober. And yeah. um, it's a totally different feeling. I remember my when I fell off the wagon, all I was on a, an airplane and I was going over for my mother's funeral. And they were serving the meal, and the stewardess says, Would you like a glass of wine? I just went, Yes, please. And that was it. Boom, gone. And I was right. even drunk at my mother's my mother's funeral. So that was mm. my shame. That one was. Right. I can't change it. Yeah. I can only hope that with my children. They don't come drunk to my funeral one day. <laughs> right. I think but, that's a big part of it is you can't change it. Accepting that you can't change anything yes. that's happened is so important. And I mean, like you said, you lost 20 years. I lost a good 10 years of my life, yeah. of my children's childhood. And I've actually managed to flip it to where I'm grateful for everything that happened the way it did. I'm grateful even for alcoholism in a way because it makes me so... I'm so grateful for life. We've dug deep into the effects of alcohol, but we've also dug deep into ourselves and we, and the acceptance of yourself as you are, you are worthy. You are a beautiful woman. You are giving so much to this community with the podcasts, with the Zooms, now telling a story. And as a young mom, there's a lot of women going to come and listen to this story and say, I know what she's talking about. I know exactly what she's talking about because the times that we will, you look and you think, okay, this has got to be my life. No, it doesn't have to be your life. Don't settle. Don't settle for less than what you're worth and you are worth a lot. I'm going to close this off now and I thank you so much for sitting with me today and I'm going to want to sit with you again and I am going to go in on Sunday and congratulate your, your, your partner Incredible. Yes. Yes, I will um, be there. <laughs> and then six months from now, I'll come and I'll congratulate you. So it's, it's wonderful. I'm looking at you and I'm looking at him on this screen next to me and his goofy face and your big <laughs> smile. That <laughs> smile is absolutely amazing on your face on that photograph. It says everything. Your skin looks beautiful. Your smile is gorgeous. You're a gorgeous mom. And I thank you so much for sitting down with me today and telling us that your story. It's very brave, very brave. And like thank say, you, Holly. Authentic. That's all you can be from here on out. That's it. Everything's yeah. down at this level now. You've, you, there's your foundation. Everything is up because yeah. you can be your real self. Right. I love you, darling. Thank you so thank much you. for sitting down with me today.